So Absalom was was riding on a donkey here, or he was he was riding on his 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 steed, whatever whatever he was riding, and and he was he was riding under a bush, and he had big flowing hair, right, and and he got caught. His hair got caught in this bush, and 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 the the, the horse went, and Absalom was left hanging there. And one of, the, one of the soldiers who had heard David, King David, say, spare the young boy, be gentle for the young man for my sake, uh, he went to Joab, who was one of the leaders of the army, and said, he, but Joab was not gentle. He went and, 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 and brutally murdered jo, uh, Absalom in the tree. And then they got a whole bunch of people around him and, and, and put a bunch of trees and rocks over the dead body of Absalom, and that's how Absalom died. It was very, very tragic. Yeah, it was tragic, Roger. But the question is, like, okay, how, what were the events that transpired to get to this point? And we've covered some of them if you've been with us. Uh, we've been covering this in, in fairly good detail, but there's, there's one part of this story. There's one person that I had never really focused on. I had never really thought about. I, earlier this week, Pastor Shibley, who was with us last week, he, he, I'm, he's like, what, well, what are you going to preach on next week? I'm like, man, Absalom. We're going to finish up Absalom. And he said, do you know about Ahithophel? And so today, we're going to trace out the story of Ahithophel kind of along with Absalom and see how did we get to this point. And you know what? Ahithophel's not a fun story either. We're in the middle of this Old Testament. We're, we're in the middle of all these stories which are the, the, uh, the punishment, the judgment of on the house of David, from David's sin when he had the affair with Bathsheba, when he killed Bathsheba's husband, and, and tried to cover it all up. So we're just not in a, in a fun part of the Bible. But we're going to look at it because the Word of God is living and active, Hebrews says. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So the Word of God is a mirror. And as we look at these stories, which are in the Word, they're weird. Not everybody's a good guy. Even the good guys are flawed. But we, we, see, the, we see in this mirror reflects things on us and teaches us, and we, we follow the king. We trace out the story of the king. So let's, let's look. Let's go back. Absalom, what did Absalom do? Well, uh, he spent four years at the city gate kind of uh, sucking up to Israel, right? He, this was back in about verse 15, a few chapters earlier. He wanted to be king, and so he was mad. He had already um, done some bad things in his life, but he, he was a guy that had big flowing locks of hair. He was probably a handsome fellow, and he uh, spent time winning over the hearts of Israel, and it says that he had stolen the hearts of Israel. 
Then he went to his dad, the king, King David, and said, Dad, I'm going to go to Hebron uh, to worship the Lord. I, I, I made this deal with God. I'm going to go to Hebron and worship the Lord. And David says, go ahead. But when he goes to Hebron, it was a plot. It was a plot because when he got there, he basically had all of his, his cronies elevate him to king. So all of a sudden, everybody in Hebron is saying, Absalom is king in Hebron. And so word gets back to David that, okay, the hearts of Israel are with Absalom. Absalom is now being called the king up in Hebron, and you need to get out of Jerusalem because it is going to be very dangerous for you because they're up there, they're going to come back, they don't recognize you as king anymore. And so David leaves Jerusalem, and he takes all of his household with him, and he takes all of his, his people, um, but he left 10 of his concubines back to, to watch over the house. Now, this is one of those parts of the Bible that can be a sticking point. Like, what he had a, yes, David had a harem, and this is, you see that this is not, um, good things didn't come from this, uh, but this is how it was. This is not the Bible saying, it's okay to have a bunch of wives and concubines. No. But that's how it was. So David left 10 of his concubines back to watch his house. And he goes on this journey out into the, into the wilderness. Um, and, and along the way, some things happen. And we, Pastor Lance preached on this a couple weeks ago. You know, one guy's cursing at him and another guy's doing this. But he comes to a point and he meets a guy who's there in sackcloth and ashes, one of David's really, really good friends, and I'm going to call him Hushi. I think his name is Hushai or whatever. We're just going to go with Hushi because it sounds more fun and it kind of sounds like a Nintendo character or something, right? <laughs> so here's Hushi, and Hushi's in sackcloth and ashes. And, 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 and David, um, David sees Hushi and goes, Oh, Hushi, don't, don't, don't come here with me. You're going to be a burden on me. Right before he had seen Hushi, he had been told that, hey, not only is Absalom, you know, going to come, but Ahithophel is with Absalom. Now, Ahithophel was one of the wisest people. I, I, you know, Solomon, David's son, who would be the king of Israel and Judah after this, uh, he was known as the wisest man on earth. Ahithophel probably could have given him a running because it was said that his advice was like one that spoke with God, right? Very smart, very strategic. And he was one of David's inner, inner circle. This is the close advisory board. And so it was tragic when David heard that Ahithophel wasn't, wasn't going to be with him Tragic from the one stand of like, oh man, that's a pretty big tactical advantage that Absalom has. Because Ahithophel was one of my best guys. And you look into the Psalms and the, some, a couple Psalms of David, and I think it's pretty fair to extrapolate that he may have been thinking about Ahithophel when he wrote in Psalm 41, even my close friend whom I trusted... 
He who shared my bread has lifted his heel against me. And then in Psalm 55, it says, If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, which I have enjoyed sweet fellowship with as we've walked with the throng in the house of God. You know, it's one thing, yeah, for, for, the, for your enemy to, you know, kind of, but when it's a friend or it's a family member, it hurts exponentially more. And they have really more power to hurt you because they know you better than anybody else. So it's with this knowledge that David sees Hushi, and, and Hushi's kind of a crafty guy, and Dave says, hey, Hushi, don't, don't, don't come with me. Here's what I need you to do. Go back to Jerusalem and endear yourself to Absalom and try to mess up Ahithophel's Lots of names, right? You're smart. You'll get it. Try to mess up Ahithophel's great wisdom. Because it was said that when David heard that Ahithophel was with Absalom, he prayed, Lord, please make his, his advice into foolishness. There's nothing you could do except pray, David thought, because Ahithophel had such great wisdom. So Hushi does this. Hushi's like, all right, Dave, cleans himself up. He goes to Jerusalem. It's at this time that Absalom and his crew, Absalom, who had been called king in Hebron, comes down into Jerusalem with his crew, the Hithophel, and they're going to they're gonna figure out, okay, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? And Hushi's there. And it's well known that Hushi and Dave were great friends. And Absalom looks at Hushi and he's like, what a great friend you are. And, 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 and Hushi's like, hey, man. And he kind of he sucks up to him. Hey, you know, I mean, why wouldn't I serve you? I served your father. Now I'm going to serve you, the one the Lord has anointed. And Absalom buys it, you know. I don't know that Absalom was the... I, mm. If a guy named Hushi is pulling the wool over your eyes... Um, and then Absalom says, okay, now that we're here, I got some power, David's fleeing, what do I do? And so he says to Ahithophel, okay, you're my guy, what do I do? Now Ahithophel has this opportunity. What is he going to say? And he says, here's what you do. Go and pitch a tent on the top of the palace, which is in the middle of everything, you know, where everybody can see. And sleep with your father's ten concubines in broad daylight so that everybody can see. And you'll be a stench to your father. This, in this, more than mildly, uh, but in this society, man, it was weird. But this is like the worst thing you can do. He's sleeping with his father's wives, his father's concubines. It's, and what it did Oh, it was great advice because it, it galvanized the people behind Absalom. And it just, it was such a put down to David. And, and David's, 
David's stock was so low and Absalom's stock was so high. It was great advice, but the other thing is it was a fulfillment of prophecy because after David had had this affair in, at night and had covertly tried to and, and succeeded in having covering it up and having um, the husband of Bathsheba murdered, it was said to him, hey, you did all this stuff at night, but your stuff is going to happen to you, calamity is going to happen to you in broad daylight, and your family, one of your sons is going to sleep with your wives in broad daylight. That was a prophecy. Now, Ahithophel's wise, and he probably was like, and I know that he knew about this, and he's like, here's the time. Here's the pressure point. This is the thing that's going to do the most damage. Boom. And he does it. So it's great advice. Very strategic. Very conniving. Very terrible. Really sinful. But great advice to accomplish the task of making Absalom king. But then what happens? Now what? Ahithophel says. <sighs> Absalom says to Ahithophel, so Ahithophel has all of his wisdom, all of his knowledge of David. He has the king's ear. How is he going to snuff out David? And he says, here's what you do. Take 12,000 men and strike David. Strategically go and find him down and, and really do your best to just kill David. Because then you're not going to kill, uh, you're not going to have the bloodshed of all these other people. And, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to strategically strike David down. And then you will be king of all Israel. And, and, and you're going to snuff him out. And that's going to be the best way. Because you can go and take 12,000, which is not the entire army. It's a little bit of a smaller thing. So they can strike fast, strike strategically. You can go and snuff him out. This is fantastic advice. Because David's at his lowest point. David's at his weakest. David is just... <sighs> it's great advice. But Absalom then says, and I don't think Ahithophel was there. He says, hey, Hushi, here's what, Abs or here's what Ahithophel said. What say you? And I think Hushi was probably sitting there going like... Phew. Dumb, 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 Absalom. Very dumb. No, 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 no. Because here's what happens. If you take a small band of people, you're not even going to be able to find David because David's smart. He's not hanging out with his men. He's like in a cave. Remember he, remember he used to be in caves and hide from Saul? No, no, no. He's totally in a cave. You're not even going to find him. Because what happens if you go out there with your small band of people and then you have any form of a defeat, if any of your people die, then nobody's going to come to your aid. No able-bodied man is going to follow you into battle. So here's what you got to do, man got to get the entire army. You got to get everybody. You got to get the biggest army that we've ever seen. And you got to go out and march after David and you have to annihilate them. And hey, you know what? If they go into a city, if they flee into a city, then you go and you siege that city and you take ropes and you make sure that every single brick and stone of that entire city is knocked down like that city never even existed. You siege, you, you just, and I'll tell you what, 
Absalom was feeling very big and like, oh, yeah, I could muster a big army. I could go and I could siege a city. I don't want to look bad. I want to look big and powerful and important. And so he says, Hushi, great advice. And they go and do that. Well, word was sent through a cool little story. I'm not going to get into it right now. Back to David about the plan. David has time because they got to muster this huge army. David has time to get out and kind of get himself set. He has time to organize. And it's said that Absalom took Hushi's advice because the Lord had determined to bring Absalom to calamity. David's prayer was answered in a tragic answer to a tragic situation. But something interesting happens because here we have Ahithophel who did exactly what he wanted to do. He was there. He had Absalom's ear. He screwed everything up. He gave him the exact right advice to crush David. And he's, he's probably away, and then he heard that they took Hushi's advice. And then it says, this is crazy, it says in 1 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 17, 23, when Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled up his donkey, set out for the house of his hometown, and he put his house in order, and then he hanged himself. And he died and was buried in his father's tomb. He killed himself. So the question is, okay, how did, how did we get to this point? You know, how, I get, how, 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 did, how did Ahithophel, being one of David's closest companions, being one of his inner circle, being the, one of the most trusted, being pretty much the wisest guy that David knew, such a brilliant strategist, how did you get from that to working so much with such vitriol against David that when his advice wasn't followed, he killed himself? Why was he so adamant about David being destroyed? Now, now motives can be hard to unearth. And uh, motives are not simple. Motives are really even not linear all the time. Sometimes you can linearly spell them out. But they're layered. Um, and, and, and there's not always one. Typically, there's many. Um, but I would like to propose two possible motive stories. Let's call them a motive story for why Ahithophel's, um, for Ahithophel's actions. The first motive story is the apparent one. And then the second one is a little more hidden. And that's the part that intrigues me the most. Now, um, the, the, the first one, the apparent one, and, and I think probably also ties in with the second one, the more hidden one. But the first one is kind of this, you know, hey, why did Ahithophel turn on David? Well, you know, uh, probably could have seen a political turn in the tide. 
um, I'm um, uh, 2004. John Kerry and the uh, the windsurfing episode or um, the windsurfing uh, ad. Okay, that's a dated political reference. Uh, anyway, YouTube it. Uh, probably, maybe he could have saw uh, seen a, a political uh, you know turning of the tide and was like, well, I'm gonna get. I'm going to get on on this side of it, right? Or maybe he wanted to just uh, back the winner because he thought that David's um, David didn't have it anymore. Maybe Ahithophel wanted power and prestige. Maybe he felt like he was so good at what he did, because he was, it sounds like, that he didn't have enough recognition from the king. But then why was he so adamant for David to be destroyed? Because this, man, this, this sounds so deep. What, maybe it's that he knew that in order for his political ambition to be accomplished, that David would have to die. Because that makes sense, right? You know, we've seen movies, you know, we, we want to rise up, and so we've got to take out this guy, and then people can do all sorts of dark and crazy things. But then why would his... He take his rejection of counsel so seriously. Now, the apparent thing, and this, this may be the answer, maybe, you know, is that, hey, he was part of a coup, and this is in the ancient <laughs> Middle East, and if you were a part of a coup and it failed, you were going to die. So he just was realized, hey, this is not going to work, so I'm just going to cut to the chase here and finish myself off instead of letting somebody else plunge a sword into me. Now those answers are apparent, but I, I think there's another possibility. And not a completely separate from the apparent possibilities of that story, but I think there's a catalyst. I think there's a reason behind the reasons. I think there's a fuel to this thesis. Now, uh, like a lot of times when we get into the finer details of stories of the Old Testament, um, not all scholars uh, agree. You know, oh, oh you, you think that. You made this point. I don't think that's how. I think it's this way. Um, not all scholars agree on my thesis, but I, I think it's strong. And um, Steve Shively thinks it's strong too, so I think it's fine to, to talk about. Why did David turn on Ahithophel? Well, it may have all happened one evening while David was strolling on the porch and he spotted a beautiful woman bathing. And after gazing, he inquired about her identity. And it was said to him, Isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Why did David, or why did Ahithophel turn on David? It may have happened when David sent Uriah to the front of the fierce battle and had him killed. Why was Ahithophel so adamant that David be destroyed? It may have been when the baby boy born to Bathsheba as a result of David's affair died as a result of David's sin. See, Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam. And at the end of 2 Samuel, we read in a genealogy that Eliam was the son of 
Ahithophel. One of the closest advisors to the king, one of the wisest, sat there as the king defiled his granddaughter, had her husband killed, had her noble husband killed. Uriah was an awesome guy. And then caused the death of his great-grandson. Why would Ahithophel take the rejection of his counsel so seriously that he would commit suicide? Perhaps, perhaps, bitterness had spent so many years festering inside of him and eating away at his identity that David's demise, making David's demise happen, was his only potential that he saw for solace. Bitterness. That's what we're talking about today is, is, is bitterness. So I've been reflecting on bitterness this week. Um, and I think that there are so many levels to bitterness. I think that bitterness um, can be very small and very, you know, I sell... I sell paint jobs, and I realized that there was a guy who had said, hey, you got this paint job. I'm like, awesome. And, and then he called me up and said, hey, yeah, I went with somebody else who was cheaper. And, like, I've seen this guy around, and I've realized that I need to let go of that because that's a bitterness. And I had even, like, told people that I was mad at him and that he had wronged me. Whatever whatever. Still bitterness. Still bitterness. But what about a promotion that you didn't get? Bitterness. Relationships that have ended badly. I've been reflecting a lot on the starts of bitterness. Because, of course, I don't hold any deep bitterness against me. <laughs> Hmm. So we look, and the Word of God is a mirror, and let's, let's look at ourselves, and let's let the Holy Spirit speak to us about, hey, where's the bitterness starting in our lives? Last night, me and my buddy Dan, he's a drummer, I'm a bass player, we were sitting out on a porch waiting to play some jazz, and he said, how's Falls Church going? I said, well, have you heard the story of Ahithophel? <laughs> <laughs> he got preached to. He's a cool Christian guy. And I said, I said, uh, man, what, what, what do you, bitterness, what do you think about? And he, he said, man, I always ask why. Like when I see bitterness, I ask why. Because Dan's in the National Guard. And so he's, sometimes, he, he said, man, sometimes there these, there's these leaders that I have. And if you've had any military experience, I haven't, but this is just Dan telling me. He said, sometimes these, these, these leaders, these officers, seem so bitter. And I'm like, oh, man, you're so bitter. But then he says, I wonder why. What have they seen? What has happened to them? Or what has happened to those that care about them? So to me, I was like, man... Dan, that's beautiful. So when you see bitterness, try to empathize. 
where did that come from? See, bitterness is really, it's fairly simple. It's harboring an offense. Bitterness is holding on to something. And bitterness is really, it's fairly simple to stamp out if it's small. But if you hold it over time, it develops, right? And it, it can grow, especially if you feed it, right? Harboring offense against somebody who did something to you or, you know, a, a personal thing. This person did something to me, so I'm, I'm personally bitter towards them. Or stuff just happens. And a lot of times when things happen that are unexplainable, that's when people blame God and harbor bitterness towards God for this or that. Because there's something that happened, we were offended, and we hold on to it. Because when you're holding on to something, you are trying to act like a judge. You're trying to be the judge. Say, hey, I can't let go of this, or else they're going to get away with this. Even if somebody murders your son, and you seek justice in the judicial system. If you hold on to that, you will be destroyed. And how beautiful. I mean, whenever a mom takes a stand in a courtroom and says, I forgive you, at the sentencing, says, I forgive this man who murdered my son. You've been proved guilty. You've murdered my son. It makes the news because it's so powerful. It's so liberating because we are not the judges. We don't have the moral authority to be judges because we've all sinned. You know the worst thing you've ever done in your life. You know the most despicable things you've ever done in your life. You don't have moral authority to judge. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then there's Jesus. See, this is where the hope comes in. This is how sermons are structured. Okay? The perfect, sinless Son of God. And right after he teaches us how to pray and says the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 14 through 15, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But... If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Hey, you have to forgive others. Just as God has forgiven you. See, the one who can judge says that forgiveness is a really big deal. And the one who can judge forgave us. The one who can judge took our penalty on the cross. See, I had to feel such a sad story. Because you look at these two people. You look at King David, who did terrible things. But you look at Ahithophel, 
that just held on to it. And as David received forgiveness and walked through the calamity with grace, Ahithophel held on and Ahithophel let the bitterness kill him. Now this is to us, the church. This is in Ephesians. Paul, who was writing to the church in Ephesus, says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind and uh, to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. So here's some practical things for us as a body. Because here's the deal. We're attempting to be a family of, be- of believers. We're attempting to be a body of Christ. And this is hard because we do dumb things and we will offend one another. Okay? I am sorry for dumb things that I say sometimes. I'm serious. And we need to learn how to forgive and do this. Shibley, who was here last week, the Shibes, great at making barbecue, by the way. Unbelievable. He said this to me one time. He said, and this is amazing, he said, an apology should be as public as the offense. An apology should be as public as the offense because... um, there was a person that had really offended me <laughs> a number of years ago. Um, but they had offended me. I heard about it through a friend. They hadn't gone directly to me, and then they had left the church. And I was just kind of going, like, Shadley, what do I do here? I, I don't know. He said, well, the apology, or the, you know, should be as public as the offense or the forgiveness as well. And uh, he said, you know, they didn't say it to you. So you deal with that between you and God. And, uh, yeah. He said, I don't know that you're going to gain much by going to this person kind of like condemningly and say, I know you said this about me, right? I, I don't know. Maybe the Lord will lead you to do that sometimes, but I would only do that with wise counsel through the fellowship of believers and the people you trust. But I do think that forgiveness does not always reach its full potential when it's kept private. We have a, there's a fallacy in our individualistic Western culture that your relationship with God is between you and God alone. Oh my word, no. Your relationship with God is communal. And sometimes forgiveness needs to be shared. And then it can, the forgiveness bounces off the person where the offense happened. And, and oh, I didn't even know that. And then it, and then it, and then it, it, it's like a bouncy ball and it bounces around and it, it bounces off you and you feel a little forgiveness because you see that God was reflected in the character of God and the forgiveness of God was reflected there and you are excited to maybe go and, and, and go on and go on and go on and that's how our culture of our body of believers is changed. 
by the culture of the forgiveness of Jesus. One last thought. Tim Keller, taking C.S. Lewis's thought on hell, says this. Hell, then, is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. It is only, it, it is sin, oh, no, I'm sorry, it is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. That little bit of bitterness, that guy who said I could have that paint job, and then he backshopped it on me and I didn't get it. If that bitterness is allowed to fester, when I get here three years down the road, it may only be this big. But think about that bitterness allowed to grow for billions of years. <laughs> it's huge. Think about the little bits of bitterness that we hold on to over months and years, especially if we feed them, which is talking about them with others so that you feel better about yourself, which feels really good at the time, but it accomplishes nothing. <sighs> That's the story of Ahithophel. That's the story of Absalom. And could we stand together? I don't know um, what the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about, uh, but um, I just want to, uh, Joan, uh, Carly, Doug, could you, you come up here and just... We want to give people the opportunity to, if the Holy Spirit have said to you, hey, remember that thing they hold on to? Deal with it. And I would suggest deal with it with a trusted person. I think it's, I think it's good and proper for, for guys probably to, 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 to pray with other guys and, and ladies to pray with other ladies. I think that's, I think that's good, you know. But if, if, and really the Holy Spirit, it's not, it's, not, it's not spooky. It's, hey, remember that one thing? Oh, yeah. Okay, that's the Holy Spirit talking to you. So if we could, let's have our hangout time out there. We have a beautiful lobby. If you want to pray anywhere in here, if you want somebody to pray with, we have people up here. If you need to go and talk to somebody in this room, let's do it. Let's be the community of believers. Let's let forgiveness bounce around. Let's let Jesus do stuff. Jesus, we thank you for this story, for this gospel. We thank you for this narrative that is different than what others may say. 
the one of forgiveness because you are the forgiver. So we ask that forgiveness would be unleashed. We ask that bitterness would be demolished. In Jesus' name, amen. You can find us online at falls.church or by searching Facebook at facebook.com slash fallschurch.sf.